Amen. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving to you. It looks like we have a lot away uh, this week uh, visiting family or eating turkey. Perhaps you are uh, in a tryptophan coma this morning. I hope not because this is a very powerful word and it should wake us up regardless of how much turkey we have eaten. Uh, my name is Trev. If you don't know who I am, I am an elder and a city group leader here at Urban Grace Church and have the privilege and responsibility of, of bringing God's word to you this morning. Uh, we're in a series on Revelation, which just to really kind of give you a perspective of what this is about, these are very intense, intentional letters that are written to a group of churches that would have been part of Asia Minor, now modern Turkey. And uh, remember that they're written by a man who's on his last days. Um, They seem a little bit desperate. I don't know if you read through, you're like, wow, that is a really interesting Thanksgiving Day message. Um, I will kill some of you. Um, I, I know, they're intense. Um, And they're real. But remember that the context in which they are written is a man who has been exiled for his faith. A man who's had and probably seen a number of his friends executed. He's already at this point been semi-boiled to death. And so if there's one last thing he wants to say as a warning to his friends in the church that he loves and has served for a long time, don't you think he would just cut to the quick and get right down to business and tell them what he thinks Jesus is saying to them, I think he would too. If I was on my last days, I would tell you the things that were most important for you to pay attention to and not worry about what people thought. And so, again, Thanksgiving aside, the warm cuddlies of Thanksgiving aside, I think this is still a good message for us. I want to begin uh, by, by saying that every city has some sort of an ethos to it. I'm I'm reading a book, well, truthfully, it says I bought it in 2012, so I'm really reading a book uh, called The Spirit of Cities, Why the Identity of a City Matters in a Global Age. And it's a fascinating read, at least for me. If you know me at all, you know I have a, a weird fascination with just the culture of cities and how cities work. And it's an academic work, actually. It's not, it's not built for the layperson. Um, it's written to academics, for academics. And yet what's fascinating is that the way in which they arrived at their conclusions was very unacademic. And they, and they, make, they, they actually said that in the beginning of the book, that most people are looking for quantitative data. And they said, we got our data by walking the streets of these cities, which sounds really unquantitative and qualitative. They said, but it's real and it matters. And actually, that's how they discovered, uh, there's a, it's a story of eight cities, and how in these eight cities, there's actually different ethos in the city. I'll, I'll explain this by reading to you a quote. It says, clearly, some cities do express and prioritize different social and political values, what we can call an ethos or a spirit of a city. Ethos is defined as the characteristic spirit, the prevalent tone of sentiment of a people or a community. It's fascinating. They have Jerusalem there. They said Jerusalem is really, it's like a very religious ethos. And, and, and Hong Kong is, is very materialistic. And Montreal is very laid back. That's the only Canadian city that made it. And I was like, that, that's an interesting take. I haven't been to Montreal, but I, I'm assuming that that's part of the ethos. I wonder if you've ever thought about the ethos of our city. I'll give you a hint. I have. 
I have thought about the ethos of our city. Um, now, you may disagree with me. I, I would describe the ethos of our city as sophisticated redneck. Is that, is that too far off or is that right? Does that hit some of you too hard? I would say that because like sophisticated in that we're a white collar city. Like have you ever described Calgary as a white collar city? As a city that's pretty business? Um, you, you, this is evidenced by about 80% or so. Uh, by the way, uh, 75% of statistics are made up on the spot. So 80% of Calgarians work in the downtown core, which means they're connected usually to what? Anyone? The oil industry? No one's connected to the oil industry? I mean, the price of oil goes down and we just have widespread layoffs. That's not a clue to any of us. We know this. This is our ethos here. And, and the, the ethos is this, this sophisticated white-collar business sense. But there's also this redneck sense, and I, I want to be careful here. Um, redneck in the sense of maverick, I would say. Maverick is maybe even a better way to say that. If you look at the history of Calgary and you look at where we came from, it's always been a maverick city. Not merely in the cowboy sense, but really in the entrepreneurial sense of we can get it done by ourselves. We don't need your help, right? You come and you start a business here and people are excited about that because they're encouraged by those who start new businesses. Almost to the point, it seems, like if you have something that's been around for a long time, like a building that was built in the 70s, let's get rid of it, let's smash it down, let's build something new because we're a maverick city that can do it. When Calgary hits a flood, what happens? Say, we don't need any help. To hell or high water, we will get it done. I wonder if you've ever thought about the way that that inhabits the way you think and the way you act toward your work, toward what goes on. I, I, again, I, I'm going to love the conversations after. Well, I think Calgary is this kind of city. Here, here's the great thing is that we get our research by just walking the city. So really, this is just a fun conversation. But it's interesting how churches start to smell and feel like the cities that are in. Have you ever noticed that? You've maybe been to a church in another region or another city and, and the church has somewhat taken on a little bit of the flavor of the local context in which it's in. That's actually the case of this particular city that we find in what is now modern Turkey, then Asia Minor. Thyatira, or Thyatira, however you want to say it. This is, a, this is a city that has, let me describe it for you. Thyatira, I don't even have pictures of it. Here's why. There was nothing to it. It was a city that out of the list of seven different churches, seven different cities where the, um, the churches were located, there's very little that's known about Thyatira. Very little. That's because it was known as a blue-collar city. Let's just, just call it Edmonton just for a, just for a second. Right? See, we're already into that debate. Actually, I had this conversation with another church planter, and I said I would describe Calgary as white-collar, and he said I would describe Edmonton as blue-collar. So that was him. But it has a different, and that's not a negative thing, especially if you're Edmontonian, right? That's a, that's a badge of honor. They're like, hey, yeah, we don't need your white-collars. We got all kinds of blue-collars around here. That's Thyatira. It's really an artisan city. I say artisan because it's, we don't have a word that would describe kind of the, the craftsman part, maybe even industrial city. 
It was a city that, that spent a lot of time creating cloth and textiles, which back in the day were really important. Actually, it is known for, uh, in, a, in a particular color, style of cloth. A, a, a cloth that's dyed, they say purple, probably indigo is, is a better word. And by the way, in, in Turkey still today, the color of choice for decorating everything is turquoise. It's still this indigo color. And Thyatira, uh, there's actually a lady, a story in the book of Acts chapter 16. Her name is Lydia. She's known as a dyer of purple cloth. So she's from Thyatira and she dyes cloth purple. I mean, very few of you have that on your business card, right? I am the dyer of a cloth. But it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. And there's this ethos and this sense in which Everyone that's part of this particular city is good at their craft. There's leather workers, there's metalsmithers, there's all kinds of these cloth and textile makers. And this is this industrial section of Asia Minor. Now to be part of these things, they had, we would have thought of them as unions. I mean, I don't know whether you're a union guy or girl. Uh, we're not going to get into that debate. But there's a sense in which like, you're, you're loyal to the union before you're loyal to anyone else. And there is a sense in which in these trades that are going on in Thyatira, there is a loyalty and they, they would form these things called guilds. And what they would do is these, these guilds were like clubs that were based around your particular trade or your, your particular textile or your, the, the kind of the art. And, and you'd have meals together. Sounds really unionist, doesn't it? You'd have all these communal meals together. And at these communal meals, perhaps you'd... you'd throw a little prayer up to the patron god or goddess at the time as you were part of these guilds. And there was a lot of pressure to join them. In fact, there's, there's, there's no evidence that, that people weren't a part of them. And so everyone who's, who's, whose work is based in a particular thing has to kind of go along with everyone else. See, they picked up the ethos of the very city. And so Jesus has some words of this particular city and they're so pertinent and the way that they're said even to this particular city. Now, now hearing that about Thyatira, hear this. The first thing that Jesus, who is the speaker, who claims to be the speaker of this particular text and this letter through an angel says to this particular church in this particular city is the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Even in the introduction, you hear like there's, there's, a, there's a little metal smithing feel to it. It's, it's, it's literally like Jesus, the Son of God, the one in charge of everything, including economies, whose eyes are, are like the fire of a smelting furnace and, and, and they shine bronze like a, a furnace would. You see how there's kind of all this pertinent kind of underhanded way of saying right to these people, I know exactly what goes on in your city. I know exactly the kind of ethos that goes on in your city. I know exactly the culture you live in. I know exactly the kind of people that live there. I know. I'm the son of God. I'm the one in charge of all things. I see every economy. I see every city. I see what cities are like. I see how people think in particular cities. And I know the spirit of your city. And I know the ethos of your city. And I don't need to walk around it. I know it. And so you see, right off the bat, there's an important statement from the author, Jesus. 
who says if he knows and he understands and he even uses imagery that, they, that makes sense to them, then it should cause all of us to listen. So what we're going to look at is three particular things. Jesus has some words. He has some positive words. He has some negative words to this particular city. The positive words are, I like your witness. I love your witness. The negative word that follows is, I don't like your compromise. And the third is not necessarily even positive or negative because it's more of a charge. Be faithful to the end. So be faithful to the end. So we're going to look at those three things. What it means to have an increasing passion for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in a city. We're going to talk about what it means to compromise and what this might look like for us. And this will probably step on our toes and we'll be a lot like the people in the church. That doesn't apply to me. And I, I, we've prayed. Just listen to the message before we make judgments. But then the, the third charge, which is really important for us to, to hold firm to the things that got us here, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go through these. First of all, an increasing, an increasing witness. An increasing witness. That's the positive part of the message. Matt read it. It says this. It's, it's one verse. I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. It's really strong encouragement. He says, I, 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 I know I not only have been in your city, here's what I've seen. I've seen the way you start and how that's been excellent. You started by hearing the good news of, of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to make any assumptions that anyone here knows what we're talking about when we say good news of Jesus Christ. He says, I know that you have heard that God is not some ancient God that you have to go to an altar and worship to. I know that that God, the God of the universe, the God that created all things has actually come to you in the form of Jesus Christ. He claims to be God. He doesn't claim to just be a prophet. He doesn't just claim to be a spokesperson. Jesus Christ claims to be God himself. That's where Christians often get themselves into trouble with a lot of other different religions. And that's in some ways where it is different than some other religions. Is that's either crazy or true. There are other religions that just call Jesus a good teacher, a good prophet, which, by the way, he is. But here is what I would say very carefully and very clearly that is from the Bible. Jesus himself claims to be God. So he is a lunatic. He's crazy or he's right. But here's what he says. I didn't just come to bring judgment on you. I actually came to take judgment for you. You see, we as, as people, we have been ignorant of God. We have been disobedient to God for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because we, we don't like what God has to say. We don't like that understanding of God. Have you ever thought that? Well, I like to think of God like this. Have you ever said that in your brain? Well, I really like this about God, but I don't really like this about God. See, that's what we're like. Because we're always in competition with the God of the universe who claims complete supremacy, complete control over everything. And we always want that control back even though we, we don't actually have it, we can't actually get it. We're always fighting him over this. But in his love, God says, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna come to you. And there's a lot of things we do to try to get to God, but that's what makes 
Christianity so different is it's, it's about what God does for us, not about what we do for God. The essence of Christianity isn't trying to get close to God. The essence of Christianity is God getting close to us. And saying, despite all of the ways in which you've been indifferent and disobedient to me and disregard of me and even your attempts at doing good things for me, that doesn't amount to much. But here's, what, here's why that doesn't matter is because I have come to you and I will take the steps to build a relationship with you. Out of what? Out of pure love. Not out of duty. Not out of anger. Not out of wrath but of a God who desires to be in relationship with the people that he has created in his image. And the church in Thyatira had heard this and they had believed this. And as a result, they had been radically changed by this message and it showed up in their works. That's what Jesus says about them. I know your works. I know the way you've, you've accepted this message of good news. I know the way you've heard of my love. I know that you believe Jesus is who he says he is. I know that you've, you're patient and that you love one another and that you serve one another. I mean, that's what I would hope for our church, wouldn't you? Does anyone want to go to a church where there's like, I'm hoping to go to a church that's cold, where they don't really love one another. They're only in it for themselves. And uh, basically, they try to avoid each other as much as possible. That's my definition of a great church. Anyone have that? No, you want to go to a church where you feel welcome. It's like the number one complaint about churches. I want to go to a church where I'm welcomed, I'm loved, I'm accepted for who I am. I can process this information about Jesus. Jesus says, that's the church in Thyatira. They believe this at first. Here's what's great about it. He says, they didn't get worse. They got better at it. I love that. And do you know how hard that is? Do you know what kind of step that is to have your church increase in this? I mean, it's, it's an incredible statement that Jesus makes to this particular church. He knows it. He knows the kind of culture it's in. And at the same time, he says, this is, this is really incredible. You have increased in your passion for me. If I look at the way you started the church and I look at what's now, you have gotten better at this. It's my hope for our church that we continue to love better. You know, everyone, if, if you have a successful marriage, you know that a successful marriage required you to get better at loving your spouse. Not worse, right? In fact, that's what's the decline of a marriage. It's like, I wish he or she loved me like when we first met. Or you ever have those feelings in a relationship where it's just, it's going dry, it's not getting good? Yeah, Jesus says, that's not the church in Thyatira. That church increased in their love and passion. And churches struggle with this. And so my question for us is, how do, we, how do we maintain our passion? How do we increase in this? Are you asking that question? You should be, because that was the point of my sermon, point number one. Do you want to know how you can increase in your passion and love for Jesus Christ? There's a lot of factors to this, but the number one is by hearing the good news of the gospel over and over again. It's that simple. It begins there. 
If you have felt like that good news that I just talked about, God coming to us, is getting old for you, it's getting boring, and you'd like to move on to some deeper things, I'll tell you what, there's a lady in one of these churches that told them exactly that. You should move on to some really deep things of God. I know them. Here at Immigrants, one of our priorities and values is to repeat the gospel over and over again to the point where you start to feel like you desperately need it. I remember when we started this church, I did something that I didn't think would necessarily, I, I, it, was, it was a step of faith for me. I preached on the book of Galatians and I actually said publicly, we're going to talk about the gospel every single week and you're going to get tired of it and you're either going to say, stop preaching the gospel or tell us more. Tell us again. Praise the Lord. What I started to hear was, I did not know how often I needed to hear that. I assumed that I believed this with the core of my being, but there was a lot of places in my life that I had not submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ in my life. And I began to hear things like, make sure you preach the gospel every week or we're going to fire you. Success. To the point where the number one criticism, when an outside preacher comes in, number one criticism is they didn't preach the gospel well. I don't hear a lot of criticism from outside preachers outside of our church, but it's happened before. And the one thing was, I'm not wasting my time going to a service where we're not going to talk about what Jesus has done for us. To me, that is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. That is the way to increase in your love and your service and your patient endurance. That's the first step. You don't increase in this by trying hard to get better at it. You increase in this when you're overwhelmed by the love of the Savior who forgives our sins takes us from our piddly little mission and puts us on his mission and gives us a hope and a purpose for life and a mission in this city that will not ever be destroyed. That's how we gain passion. By hearing and examining what the good Savior Jesus Christ has done for us and does through us and in our case, does in spite of us. That's how we increase. Second thing, Jesus says, this is amazing. He takes this switcheroo and he goes from like, here is what you're doing, awesome. This is, but here are some of the issues I have with you. And they, they're pretty harsh, let's be honest. They're pretty harsh. But they all are summarized by this phrase, a compromised lifestyle. And actually, one of the best ways we can understand this particular letter is the, is the fact that, that Jesus in some way, or, or, or even the writer in some way, is contrasting this with some of the other letters. So there's other letters to other churches that are really good doctrinally. They're really good with the teaching part. They hold to the truth. They believe this is the word of God and they, they do not budge from it, but they're cold people. You ever met anyone like that? They're, they're the rule follower people. You'll find them. Maybe you're married to them. And so you know this, right? They follow the rules. You get something from Ikea, what's the first thing they look at? It's the instructions. Make sure all the parts are there, right? So there's, there, there's those kind of churches that are just, they're 
A-type personalities or badgers or whatever. I don't know how that works, but badgers. I, wipe that off the video, please. <laughs> but but, but they're truth people. They're truth people. Thyatira's love, they're, they're the love people. They're warm. But here's what Jesus says he has against them. You tolerate you tolerate people with a bad message. It's a little bit similar to last week's message or, or the previous one in Pergamum. He gets real specific here, though, and he calls her Jezebel. This might not mean a whole lot to you, but, um, and, and really, like, I, I've done a lot of reading on these things. I'm doing my best to distill this for you. You could read it, too, if you just, you know, went to a theological library and pulled out a commentary on Revelation. So this is not, like, it's not rocket science, it's, it's like theological science, but Jezebel, we're not sure. We're not sure if this is a person, we're not sure if this is an ideology. And here's what I would say, it doesn't even matter. You could go either way on that. Some, some scholars think this is the wife, and I can just see this, this is the wife of a, of a very prominent teacher. She's really gifted. She's able to persuade people she, she's really powerful, and she, she says things like, do you want to know the deeper things of God? As contrasted by the way the Scripture says, you haven't learned the deeper things of Satan. So even, even Jesus is kind of making a knock on this particular prophet or this particular ideology and say, you think there's more to this than I'm telling you? No. Stick to what you first heard. Jezebel, she calls herself a prophetess. I mean, she calls herself, you know, like, and maybe you have had someone say this or maybe you've done this yourself. I've heard a word from the Lord and it's for you, right? Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're like, Trev, that is a really dynamic message for my friend who should have been here because they need to hear that. It's this idea that like, I, I, I know the truth. I understand this. I get it. I've heard from the Lord and it's for you. I got this. But she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, this might mean nothing to you. Sexual immorality is the junk drawer word that the Bible uses for any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife. It is. It just is. The word is porneia, where we get the word pornography from. Anything outside of that particular relationship, but also food sacrifice to idols, which I, I don't know about you, it, we, don't, we don't think this is a problem in our particular context, right? We don't have clubs that are like, we're, we're trying to avoid foods that sacrifice to idols at Urban Grace. Probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but here's what it is. We, we've got to understand this in terms of the context of Jezebel. Jezebel is, again, this, this word for this, this ethos. And here's where this actually comes from. It comes from an Old Testament story and the thing about Old Testament stories is the context is so important, but essentially the story goes is that over time, over time, like as things were created rightly and then people disobeyed, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the need for a savior and someone to clean things up became greater and greater and greater. 
And so at some point in the story of God, God's people said, hey, we need a leader just like everyone else has a leader. We need a king. And God says, oh no, you don't want a king because if you get a king, then you'll be just like the rest of the culture. I don't want you just like the rest of the culture. I want you very different from the culture. I want people to look at you and say, oh, that reflects a different God, a different ethos, a different set of values. And they said, no, we really want a king. And so they, God said, okay, I'm gonna give you what you want. And he gave them kings and he, God was right. Kings just made a mess of everything. Within decades, the entire group of God's people is being led astray by bad kings, bad teaching, people that come in. Often it would happen through intermarriage, not racially or ethnically, but religiously, because that's how marriage worked in those days. A lot of times, if you got married to someone from a different culture and a different ethnicity, it meant you said okay to those gods and you had to worship those gods and, and the phrase happy wife, happy life didn't come from this culture. It came from that culture which says you worship if you want to keep your wife happy. That's how it worked. And so this one queen came in to this one king and this king, the Bible says, this king was worse than any other king. He, was, he, he did so many things to lead God's people away from, from focusing on him and obeying him and understanding him. Plus, if that wasn't enough, he married this one gal and her name was Jezebel. And she successfully led the entire nation of Israel away. Because she told, she deceived them. She told them it was no big deal. She told them, oh, don't worry. The way we worship God is kind of like yours. It's harmless. You ever heard those words whispered in your ear? It's harmless. It's not a big deal. You won't really be that affected by this. Everyone's doing it can't help it, I'm a victim. That's essentially what Ahab said. And Jesus says, whether it's the person, ideology, he says, you have let the spirit of Jezebel into your church and she's deceiving you everywhere. And you can't see it. You can't see that she's, she's preaching a sermon that's telling you to be like the culture instead of to be, obey me. So the question surfaces for us, where is that spirit alive in our church today? These messages aren't just for Thyatira. Jesus says, anyone that will listen to this, I want you to listen to this because there's a lesson to be learned. And I will say, this is likely one of those moments where you and I are frogs in a kettle of boiling water. Well, we probably can't see this as well because of the city we live in. But think back to what I started the message with the ethos of our city, the way our city is, is work-driven, the way our city is all about that. Have you ever noticed yourself, and I'm going to take the work spin, the economic spin. Remember, the Thyatirans, they did not feel the pressure to worship these other gods because the food tasted good or because the sexual immorality wasn't that heinous. It was because they wanted to keep their jobs. Have you ever compromised something that you believe? Jesus says is wrong because of your work. 
Have you ever been tempted to compromise in a way because everyone in the city of Calgary does it? Even though it's clearly wrong. I worked for a while in the service industry, which is a nice way of saying I was a dish pig. And I remember very clearly looking at the schedule and going, I handed in at least three or four more hours to the schedule. And I talked to somebody and said, how come I got gypped out of four hours? At the time, I was making $6.50 an hour. That dates me, by the way, doesn't it? $6.75, maybe. That was the year the NDP came in. I'm not sure. And I asked, I said, what's the deal here? I said, oh yeah, you go to any restaurant, that's a deal. They'll just shave off a half hour here, half hour there. It's just industry standard. And I thought, what would happen if I was a Christian in there and I just couldn't chew that? I couldn't accept that. And I just said, no, we're going to pay people for what they worked. Not shave off a half hour here, half hour there so that I can present a better bottom line. I thought, I don't know. What if, what if there was pressure on me to, to hold down that job? And if I didn't do that, then someone would say, you're not cut out to be a manager because you just don't know how to be cutthroat. Okay, that's an example that I thought of, but what is it for you? I don't know. I couldn't possibly know all of your job situations. I couldn't possibly know whether the daily activities that you do at your job are right, but I do know this, that in some way, shape or form, you're probably tempted to cut corners on your company, to waste hours, which is, let's, let's call it what it is, it's stealing. Overcharge for things, right? Ever, ever taken your, your uh, car into the shop and there's a shop charge, right, at 4.19? I asked someone about that once. No one knows where it comes from or what it's supposed to pay for, but everyone does it. What, what is the shop charge in your industry? Where have you felt the pressure to maintain your economic status or face within your particular culture? Where Jesus is clear, he said, this is not the way that someone who follows me lives and acts. It's a hard word for us. Because there are parts of our life that we think they, following Jesus doesn't affect this particular part of my life. But it does. And here's what Jesus says. I see it all. You don't get away with anything. How scary is that? What does he say? He says, I'll strike the children dead. You get into bed with this lady, and this is kind of metaphorically, does this make sense now? You get into bed with this lady, you have children with this lady, and I, there's, you won't escape it. It's not going to go away because you wish it was different. In fact, many times it's going to cost you a job, a relationship, a position, a promotion, or maybe even a tax bracket. I understand this. And believe me, just because I'm a pastor does not mean I don't have temptations in the same kinds of ways. Pastors are notorious for ripping off churches. 
for not working hard or for finding ways. I mean, isn't that what makes the news? So I am not, I'm not unsusceptible to this very disease, friends. I'm just as susceptible, maybe even more than you are. I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to us. And what does Jesus say? I am he who searches the mind and the heart. I can see right through it. Because here's what happens. I know, I know. I was like, well, you know, truthfully, I'm, I'm, I'm probably an exception here, hey? Like, have you thought that this morning? I'm kind of the exception, really. Like, my work, my, my morals, my attitude, my ethics, they're, they're kind of above board. This doesn't really apply to me. That's exactly what Jesus says. See how deceptive this is? See how deceptive this can be? To think you haven't picked up this ethos? I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. We don't talk a lot about the second kind of judgment that's found in the Bible, not the judgment for our sin. Not the judgment for our sin. But the judgment of what we do with what we are given. It's all over the scriptures. Some people think like, it doesn't matter what I do with my life as long as I believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually doesn't say that. He says, actually, I will judge you according to the things that you do. And there's actually a scripture passage that says, some of you will get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, by the hair, the width of the hair on your head. But all of the work, all of the stuff that you've done in your life will be burned away like fire and you'll just barely get in. He says, I reward people according to their works. It's called stewardship. It's like, you know what a steward is? You know what a trust is? Like if you hand your investment into a bank that's called trust and they steal your money, that's wrong. They go to jail for this. And Jesus says, if I hand you gifts, finances, resources, people, relationships, and you just take them into your own hands and do whatever you want with them, that's wrong too. And he says, you don't escape that judgment. Nobody does. I see everything. And that's why I said it's, it's a hard word for us. In this economy, when you and I are going to face pressures of all kinds to cut corners, to sign up for jobs that we don't really believe in, that take advantage of people, that put people in a position that's difficult for them, I, I guarantee you one, two, or 20 of us are going to face some of these sort of pressures in the coming months. And so we need to hear this. And we need to be reminded that Jesus does not just gloss over this. And he says, I'm, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. And so here's what he says to close. He says to so go back and you hang on to what you first heard. You don't hang on to the economic prosperity that you happen to have. You don't hang on to that lifestyle, that job that, that gets you to where you really want. You don't think for a second that, that really the economy is the one in charge or the, the price of oil is the one in charge or the mayor is in the one in charge or the ethos of the city is the one in charge. He says, you remember that I'm in charge. 
And you remember that I am the savior of this world and I could have come in a judgmental way. I could have destroyed you for your sin. I could have told you you were ignorant children and and disregarded everything. But he says, here's what I do. I offer you an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading and will never die if you trust in me. The Bible does not say that Christianity is try harder. The Bible says when you believe in Jesus Christ, you become an heir to everything that Jesus accomplished. Isn't that incredible? Like some of us, we want a great heir, right? We want to be an heir to a great inheritance. And when you're a son or daughter, like my kids, they're my kids, whether they do good or whether they do bad. Right? They're my kids. They're heirs to whatever, what little it is, they could inherit from me. That's how it works. And God says, through my son Jesus Christ, by trusting that he is who he says he is, you are an heir to everything that he has. Which is why he says, I will then give you authority. It's like you will reign with him. I will make you the morning star. I will, get, I, will, I will put you at the top with me. So despite all the ways you've disobeyed, despite all of this stuff, I will bring you in. You're part of my family and I want you and I invite you to be one of my children. And friends, we need to hold fast to that inheritance. Because as we're watching Some of us have desperately depended on everything other than Jesus. We've depended on the economy and we've watched it go into a tailspin that none of us are really sure when it's going to come out. But I'll tell you what's not going to go into a tailspin is the inheritance Jesus gives to you. The riches he gives to himself. He says, you will reign with me forever. I will fulfill every longing more than you can even imagine. You will experience more love. You will experience more joy. You will experience more awesomeness if you trust in me. I'll call Steve up and Jen. Because we conclude by simply saying, here's here's our chance to respond. And I'll tell you a few things. We, we design our service, first of all, for you to hear from the Lord, and we pray, Jesus, let these words be your words and not just Trev's words. But then we say, we need to respond. We need to respond by singing. We need to pr- respond by participating. That's why we don't come and hand the elements to you. We want you to come up as an act of worship, as a way of participating, of saying, yes, I'm one of those children. And we, we, we pass the plate around because actually the Bible says where your heart is, that's where your money will be. And so we even think giving is a response and an act of worship, not for guests. We're not trying to make money. We're not trying to fundraise here. We're trying to say one of the things, one of the reasons why we do this is because it shows us where our hearts are. It's a way of responding to the generosity of God. It's one of the ways in which we continue to keep a passion for Jesus going in this city because what we do here requires funds. 
And so all of this is a response. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to respond. And I want you to listen carefully. The, the scripture ends with, he who has an ear, let him hear. You could say she too. It's not gender exclusive. They who have an ear, let them hear. What is Jesus saying to you? What is he saying? Confess, repent, turn around from what you're doing. Where is he saying, trust me for who I am? Where is he saying, you are my child and respond accordingly?